Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Genesis chapter 22. And let me read you the first 14 verses of Genesis 22. You follow in your copies as I read. Genesis chapter 22 at verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they they came to the place at which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of this place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, it endures forever. What I've just read you, ladies and gentlemen, is perhaps the most famous story or one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It's certainly the most famous story there is in the life of Abraham. It's the very pinnacle. It's the climax of Abraham's life. This story is even contained in the Koran, interestingly enough. There's much been said about it, much been written about it, much been preached about it. This story has been used as the subject of preaching of sermons on child sacrifice, on parenting uh, in, uh, in its broad sense. It's also been used to, t- in fact, in my reading, What I found is a lot of commentaries concentrating on verse 1, where it said that God tested Abraham. And they spent a lot of time talking about the test uh, of Abraham, because God indeed frequently tests his people. And this is an awfully severe test. I mean, um, they waited a long time for this son of promise. Uh, Abraham is probably 110 years or so. And how do you explain to your wife that you just killed the son of promise? How do you come back home and say, honey, I got something I need to tell you. Uh, indeed, folks, this is, a, this is a very severe test. But God does indeed take his people through times where certain things are revealed about us. Um, you know, with, without tests... Our faith is, a, is really a bunch of talk. It's a bunch of appearance is all, is all it is. You know, I told you a story years ago 
about Elizabeth Elliot. Do you remember that story where she visited a friend of hers um, uh, who was a sheep herder in northern Wales? And she arrived on a day where they were taking all the sheep and dumping the sheep, the whole sheep, the whole thing, into a vat of antiseptic, head and all. And the, the purpose was they were going to kill all the parasites and the bugs that was in the woolen coat and all that business. And, and as Elizabeth Elliot watched, she, she wondered, she said, I wonder what the sheep is thinking. I wonder, I wonder if they're thinking, aren't you supposed to be taking care of me? And now it feels like you're trying to kill me. I wonder what that feels like. And she said, I think I know. I think I know when, when, the, when God authors those tests in our lives, when it, when it feels like the one who says he loves us is about to kill us. I read another story that I thought was equally as interesting. It was about a woman who was um, uh, vacationing on one of the barrier islands off the coast of South Carolina. And she came, her vacation occurred during the season where these giant loggerhead turtles make their way onto shore and lay their eggs. So one night she was walking up and down the beach and sure enough, here comes this giant loggerhead turtle out of the ocean to lay its eggs. And so she follows it and sees where it nests and she doesn't want to disturb them. So she goes home, gets up, or sleeps, gets up the next morning and goes back to find the eggs. And sure enough, she finds them. But she also finds that there are some tracks leading away from the eggs going in the wrong direction. Apparently, the mother turtle had gotten all discombobulated and was headed away from the ocean instead of towards it. And so she followed the tracks and she finds the turtle, sure enough, and it's there dying in the hot sand. And so she, she covers it with some sea moss and she pours some ocean water in it and she runs to get a, um, a, a park ranger to help. And so she finds the park ranger and the park ranger comes. The park ranger gets out of, the, out of his jeep. He goes to the turtle and he immediately flips the turtle over on its shell side. And then he takes some tire chains, wraps the tire chains around these stubby little turtle legs and hooks it to the jeep and begins to drag the turtle across the sand dunes back to the ocean. And she said, there I sat, saw that turtle, and, you know, and the little mother has got her neck straining, trying to keep from breaking her neck, and the sand's going everywhere, and she's spitting out all the sand and, and just trying to survive. Finally, they get to the ocean's edge, and, and uh, the, the park ranger gets out, and unhooks the turtle, flips the turtle over, and uh, doesn't do much at first, but pretty soon the, the waves kind of lap over, and she swims off, and she's fine. But the woman who observed all this, in, in, in uh, summarizing her experience, she says this. Watching her, that is the turtle, watching the turtle swim slowly away and remembering her nightmare ride through the dunes, I noticed that sometimes it is hard to tell whether you are being killed or being saved by the hands that turn your life upside down. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? That's what God does to his people from time to time, ladies and gentlemen. He turns our life upside down. He does test us. So many of those sermons that I read, or commentaries that I read, were about verse 1 concerning those tests. And then there were sermons that were devoted to the obedience of Abraham about, um, you know, Abraham obeyed. So, yay, Abraham, everybody go out and obey like Abraham. And no matter how outrageous the demand, you just go do it. Then there were sermons about self-denial. You know, really, guys, we're pretty selfish people, but it's when sacrifices are called for when we really find out the truth about our own hearts. You know, I had people ask me, if I come to Christ, am, am I going to have to give up blank? Fill in the blank. Am I going to have to give up this, 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 this? And um, your answer is in verse 2. You notice what he said to Abraham? He said, you go and I'll tell you later where you're going. 
Well, for those of you who wonder if you have to give up anything, here's the answer. You go, he'll tell you later. But folks, all of that to say, this story, as marvelous as it is and how much ink has been spilt over it, I do not think is about sacrifice or self-denial or child sacrifice or parenting. It's not about tests. This story is about... It's about a road out of God-forsakenness. That's what it's about. It's about a cross. You know, several years ago, um, our staff and elders read a book together. The title of the book was On a Hill Too Far Away. And we all enjoyed the book. And you can notice I borrowed the title for my sermon this morning. But uh, everybody remembers, if you read that book, I bet you remember... The first chapter. In the first chapter, the author tells you about a church in old Greenwich, Connecticut. And in this church, there is a cross. Not a cross on the church, but a cross in the church. It's not a cross like that. This was a ten-foot-tall cross that was bolted into the concrete floor right in front of the pulpit. Like, like, like right there... This ten-foot cross was right in the middle of this church. Um, you know, its, its, its location defied any kind of logic, much less decor. And no architect in his right mind would put something that big and that obtrusive at, at, at that spot. It was an obstruction. When the preacher was preaching, everybody in the congregation had to kind of noticeably lean one, just one side or the other to be able to, to, to see the pastor. You know, the more you think about that, that might be a pretty good idea. Huh? So you, you wouldn't have to look at this. You could just, you know, just not lean. But, but the point is, gang, this cross, there was, there was nothing pretty about it. It was this sturdy wooden cross made of raw, untreated wood. It was immovable. It was a veritable factory of splinters. And it stood right there. It was in the middle of everything. It was in the middle of weddings and funerals and concerts and baptisms and Sunday morning services. You know, where do you put the casket? I mean, where does the bride and groom stand? Does the bride stand on one side and the groom stand on the other? What, what if the groom catches her bride her dress on one of those splinters? I mean, my, my, my goodness, what, what if, um, what, where, where do you put the horn section? I mean, the thing is just in the way. It's, it's, it's just every time that church came to meet, every event had to accommodate that cross in one way or the other. I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, that this story in Genesis 22 is about a cross. It is imposed in this story that is undeniable and hopefully unmissable. And what I want to do with my remaining minutes is show it to you. It's my privilege, ladies and gentlemen, to show it to you. It's there. And I don't want you to miss it in discussions of testings and parenting and self-denial and all that business. I don't want you to miss the cross that is superimposed on this entire story. Let me show it to you in six different observations. We'll have to go quick. Here we go. Number one. I hope you noticed in verse 1, this whole story took place in the land of Moriah. 
Did you see that? That's in verse uh, 2. They were supposed to go to the land of Moriah. Now, gang, that ought to ring a bell. But just in case it doesn't ring a bell, let me tell you where the land of Moriah is. Folks, the land of Moriah, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. The land of Moriah was the place that centuries later, Solomon, remember him, son of David? Solomon would build the temple in the land of Moriah. It was the, the temple, of course, was the place where all of the sacrifices took place. From, from Solomon to Christ, the time of Christ, sacrifices took place in the land of Moriah. And in that area, there is another hill that is attached. And that hill is known as Calvary. The hill known as Calvary is found in the land of Moriah. Here's what that means. Isaac, in this story, was strapped to a piece of wood on the same hill where Jesus, centuries later, would be nailed to a piece of wood. Here's the second observation. This fellow Isaac... You know, Abraham is indeed the center of this story, yes. But Isaac is pretty key as well. He's he's certainly no mere foil in this whole story, as if he's some kind of accidental object on which the obedience and faith of Abraham is proved. No, no. Isaac, folks, if you if you haven't read this before, Isaac is the is the son of the promise. Whoa. This is the one, the long awaited miracle boy. In in and Isaac Every saving thing that God has promised to do is invested and guaranteed. Everything that God was going to do, he was going to do it through this, this Isaac boy. If there is a road out of God forsakenness, it's going to go through Isaac. One way or the other, Isaac is at the center of all of God's redemptive plans. But now, in this story... It looks like God wants to kill him. God is going to kill the son of the promise. But folks, understand, Isaac is a son of promise. He's not the son of promise. Isaac is just a picture. Isaac just is just a portrayal of the, of the real son of promise that will come later. And indeed, the route of redemption will go through the Son of Promise. Just not this one. He's just a prediction of the real Son of Promise to come. Here's the third observation. This little trek towards Mount Moriah took three days. For three long days they walked in virtual silence. And what a awful three days it must have been. At least for Abraham. When you get to verse 6, folks, the whole story slows down. And every event is recorded for you. Look at verse 6. He took the wood, laid it on Isaac. He took the fire in his hand and a knife. Where else would you take the fire? And the two of them. But intentionally, folks, the narrator has slowed this thing down. To tell you everything that is now going on. 
In all that is happening, Abraham's mind surely was filled with all of these memories. All the way back to the night that he and Sarah both laughed at the prospect that someone as old as she might conceive a child. But she does. And here he is, walking up the side of a mountain with his father Abraham and a knife in his hand. And then, Ab- and then Isaac, in verse 7, asks this pathetic question. Daddy! Hey, Dad, Dad, I see the knife, I see the wood, I see the fire, but... <laughs> Daddy, where is the lamb? And Abraham has no answer for that. He doesn't know how it's going to work out. He has a glimpse. He knows a little. And you see what he knows in verse 8. He says, my son, however this thing plays out, I'm not sure. But I know this, son, that God is the solution to this trauma. Son, the issue here is not what I'm doing. The issue here is not in what my obedience and self-denial, son. The issue is that God's going to provide something. I, I don't understand it all. But, but God will provide something. And this mystery that I have in my mind and you have in your heart is going to be solved on this mountain. But I don't know how. And it was solved on that mountain, my friends. When the father took his only son and nailed him to some wood. This text and this story slows down to a crawl in verse 9. Look at it. Then he came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar, and he stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay him. Which brings me to my fourth observation. It's at that moment, folks, at verse 10, and not a moment before, none too soon, that a voice is heard. It is the voice of the one who, many centuries later, would die on that same mountain. It's the voice of the one who would give his life for 10,000 Isaacs and 10,000 Abrahams. It was that voice that now speaks to Abraham from heaven and says, don't do it. And the test is over, at least for Abraham. And, and, and folks, in one of the strangest twists in all of redemptive history, the burden now is shifted off of Abraham. The focus of this story is no longer on Abraham. The focus is now not on what Abraham was asked to do, but on what God has promised to do. Because this scene of self-denial, ladies and gentlemen, in chapter 22... This scene that so many make so much of in terms of self-denial is surpassed by only one other scene in the history of man. There's only one other scene in the history of man, ladies and gentlemen, that displays more self-denial than this one. And it was um, on a hill called Calvary where a greater event of self-denial is not only seen, but carried through to its completion. 
For on that hill, centuries later, a greater father went through with this whole event of killing his son, his only begotten and beloved son. Compared to God's self-denial, Abraham's is puny. Because, my friends, God sacrificed the son who was much beloved by angels. God was a father that sacrificed a son who wore a crown of thorns and exchanged, wore a crown of rule and exchanged it for a crown of thorns. And here's my fifth observation for you folks. With a couple of sentences in verses 11, 12, and 13, the narrator gives to us perhaps the clearest hints of how God will provide a road out of God-forsakenness to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. There are hints here, gang, in verses 11 through 13 as to how God is going to pull this off. How is justice and mercy going to be performed at the same time? How will, how will God bring judgment and love together? How can God be both just and the justifier at the same time? It's in verse 13 where we're told, verse 14, And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide as it is to this day. But in verse 13, you find that Abraham has found a ram that's caught in the thicket. How is God going to do it? Well, it's going to involve a ram, a ram that was caught, and a ram that was sacrificed. It really doesn't have to do with Isaac. It has to do with another event that will occur much later. And Isaac watches as his father lifts the knife over his own torso and is relieved to discover that a substitute was caught in the thicket because God saw to it. God saw to it, ladies and gentlemen, that for other fathers, there was a substitute. But when it became his turn, there were no substitutes for him. There were no substitutes for the substitute. When it came time for a remedy for people's sin to be found, none could be found except in God's Son, the, the Lamb of God that has taken away the sin of the world. And you and I, after that takes place, we can go to the cross of Christ and we can look at the cross of Christ and now say, Father, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your only begotten Son from me. There it is. The cross in all of its splendor. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a cross that, that is placarded from this text. I have one more observation and I'm finished. There's one last thought. There is a sense, my friends, that I am Isaac. That this story is about God and me. I'm the one who gets spared. Because... God provided a ram in the thicket. 
and, and I'm the one, because God has made this provision, I'm the one that gets to walk down the mountain with no burdens. I'm the one that got released from destruction because God made a provision. I'm the one that can skip down the mountainside and laugh all the way down knowing that death is behind me. I'm alive because of the ram. I will live forever because God provided His only begotten and beloved Son as a substitute for my sin. My life now is full holy laughter is yours our father I do pray that what is what the people will walk away from here seeing is a is a cross a cross on which the prince of glory died an old rugged cross an emblem of suffering and shame And yet it is to that cross that we cling. Because it is there that we find the the road out of God-forsakenness. Through what you did, not Abraham, but what you did with your son to provide a, a substitute for my sin. Father, might every listener here have a sense of the preciousness of that cross and what happened on it. Do that, Father, for Jesus' sake. In His name we pray.